You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. A quick look back at Patch Tuesday. Amazon gets solid reviews for a password reset campaign. A new Trojan is caught manipulating Swift fund transfer logs. IoT botnets worry e-commerce sites, and the EU's proposed stickers seem unlikely to allay those concerns. Australia confirms a foreign intelligence service hacked its Bureau of Meteorology, but it won't say which foreign service that was. And, says the U.S. to Russia, ready or not, here we come. Maybe. I'm Dave Bittner in Baltimore with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, October 12, 2016. Yesterday, of course, was Patch Tuesday, but with a difference. As announced, Microsoft has moved away from its pick-and-choose patching regime and toward a new take-it-or-leave-it approach. This month's Hobson's Choice addressed five zero days in Internet Explorer, Edge, Windows, and Office. Adobe issued 81 fixes to Acrobat, Reader, and Flash. Several of the vulnerabilities closed could afford attackers' remote code execution in affected machines. Oracle is expected to revamp its own patching practices in the near future as well. Amazon is asking its retail customers to reset their passwords. The requests are targeting those consumers whom Amazon has reason to believe may be using compromised passwords. The company has identified possible password reuse from its inspection of recent big credential breaches. The response to Amazon's move from the security industry has been, as far as we can tell, overwhelmingly positive. They see the reset campaign as a positive, proactive step from a company that hadn't itself sustained a breach. Here's a sampling of what people are telling the CyberWire. Stealth Bits' Brad Boosie offered enthusiastic approval bordering on rapture. Praise Amazon, Boosie said. This act is exactly what organizations need to do to look out for their customers. John Gunn of Vasco Data Security calls it an incredibly smart move. It essentially says that even if your other online providers won't protect you, we will. He sees it as Amazon showing their innovative mindset and customer-first business philosophy. Peter Gongiossi, product manager of Blindspotter at Balabit, said, What's interesting in Amazon's action is that it's probably one of the first cases when a large online company takes a proactive measure in resetting passwords. He sees this as being a bit risky, insofar as Amazon's letter confirmed that passwords had been reused. He also thinks it's another wake-up call to move toward personal password managers, multi-factor authentication, and behavioral analytics. 
Vasco's gun agrees on the shortcomings of the password, which he characterized as a 30-year-old technology with increasingly obvious limitations. Kunan Anand, co-founder and CTO of Prevoti, said, quote, It's fantastic to see companies like Amazon being progressive about password management. Until everyone moves to a password manager and has unique passwords for every account, there will always be password reuse, end quote. He calls Amazon scanning for compromised passwords a win-win for both the company and its customers. Not all the news is as welcome as Amazon's notification to its customers. The SWIFT funds transfer system is again under attack, this time by either Carbonax Masters or someone very much like them. A Trojan, Odenaf, has been observed manipulating SWIFT logs. IoT botnets continue their service-disrupting probes of various networks. E-commerce sites are held to be especially vulnerable since their business depends upon high availability. The EU's announced plans to certify the cyber safety of IoT devices is derided by Naked Security as an attempt to fix the problem by affixing stickers to connected stuff, which for now seems unkind but fair enough. Further fairness would note that this probably represents little regulatory steps for little regulatory feet, and that the policymakers will have to toddle a bit before they can run. With more and more business being done these days on mobile devices, and many businesses opting for bring-your-own-device policies, how do you ensure your proprietary information isn't being compromised on devices you may not control or own? Joey Alonzo is president of Quartum, an insider threat and risk management company, and he has some advice, drawn from his own experience. I recently left a large third defense contractor on good terms and noticed A month or so later, when I went through my download file and my picture files on my phone, that I still had sensitive type information that I used my phone for reviewing, probably while I was at meetings or maybe when I was in my car or riding on the train. I think about my own iPhone, and if I I back it up to my desktop computer, you know, if I had a bunch of uh, files on there from work, those files would get backed up to my desktop computer. And now we've sort of extended the attack surface where now my desktop computer is a target or could be a target as well. Yes? Absolutely. So what you've now done is you've put your company's data at additional risk by being placed onto your home computer that you may insert a flash drive, your 12-year-old hops on there, grabs something, heads over to a friend's house, different types of malware that are able to be accessed on your computer, all the data, all the information. And you probably at home do not have the same type of network security requirements or software or a team of 20 to 25 people protecting your home computer system. What happens when your kids hook up their iPhones to it? And back up. So think about the information that goes back onto their phones and when they're and when they go. And perhaps you're not the person who hooks up the public Wi-Fi, but guess what? Your kids probably are if they're stopping at Starbucks or Panera or even a local McDonald's has public Wi-Fi. If I'm a company and I'm allowing my employees uh, or encouraging my employees to use their own devices for, for all the, the good reasons that, that uh, people want to do that, uh, what are the things that you recommend? What we recommend first is to develop a policy and practices and procedures that follow what you think are the threats to your company's mobile device. We can all tell employees at a meeting, hey, be careful with this, be careful with that. But if you actually put it out in a policy, if you base it on the legal requirements, 
if you base it on your kind of attitude as a leader within a company, if you're kind of laid back, if you're pretty strict, if you're kind of that hardcore guy or girl who, who wants things your way and that's the only way, there's nothing wrong with that. But just make sure that you convey that to your employees. Make sure that they're briefed on what you expect for them or from them in order to use their phones. Provide those policies. People are going to follow those. You're going to have that 95% of people that understand they're going to let you know. Make sure they understand what to do when their phone is lost. Make sure they understand what to do if they notice something odd going on on their phone, if they get unique requests, if they're on a public Wi-Fi, whether it's a company phone or an employee-owned phone, you as the company owner need to be aware of what's going on with every device that is handling your company's information. That's Joey Alonzo from Quartum. Australian official sources confirm what's long been generally believed. Malware found in the Bureau of Meteorology was installed in December 2015 by an unnamed foreign intelligence service. That nameless service, which widespread media speculation at the time of the incident's discovery held to be the Chinese PLA, seems to have been interested in pivoting from the Bureau to establish persistence in other government networks. The Bureau of Meteorology also deploys high-performance computers, themselves sufficiently powerful to be of probable interest to an intelligence service. In another long-running espionage story, France's TV5 Monde talks about its March 2016 hack. Those responsible are believed to have been working for Russian intelligence services. They flew what's now regarded as the false flag of the cyber caliphate. Foreign policy recounts the difficult-to-follow spore of the possible Russian information operation padding around Clinton consigliere Sidney Blumenthal, WikiLeaks, and presidential candidate Donald Trump. The publication sees it as a sort of house of mirrors bound to splinter the truth in a Blumenthalism found in the leaked emails into a variety of conspiracy theories useful in influence operations. An op-ed in the Christian Science Monitor's passcode thinks there's room for doubt concerning Russian responsibility for the Democratic National Committee and that the U.S. intelligence community might consider raising public confidence in the attribution by revealing more of its evidence. The intelligence community's statement, short as it may be on specific evidence, is not at all coy in its attribution. Look to companies including CrowdStrike, FireEye, and Fidelis for what's publicly known. The Russians did it, say the IC, and the operation was authorized at the highest levels of the Russian government. The Moscow Times seems convinced, and in a minority view, also sees the episode as putting Russian President Putin in a bit of a diplomatic pickle. U.S. President Obama has said there will be retaliation, and he won't tell the Russians in advance what that retaliation will look like. A raised eyebrow op-ed in Lawfare suggests the president's also not going to tell Congress. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. 
In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, uh, you recently attended a conference. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us about that. So in uh, August, I attended the annual crypto conference out in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, that conference is basically the premier conference for academic cryptography in the United States. And what are some of the things there that caught your eye? Well, there were lots of papers, of course, but one of the things that seemed uh, most interesting were there were several papers focusing on obfuscation. Obfuscation is a relatively new idea that's popped up uh, in the cryptographic community. Of course, it's been around uh, for decades uh, overall. But basically, people have developed over the last couple of years a way to provably obfuscate software, namely um, changing it in such a way that even somebody looking at the source code can't figure out anything about how the program actually works. And so what are, are, are there any uh, downsides to using obfuscation? Well, so it's still in, the, uh, in, in its infancy, I would say, from a cryptographic standpoint. Uh, it sounds great, and it sounds like it would have lots of applications. But for one thing, the current schemes are horrendously inefficient. And uh, basically, it would take several hours not only to run one of these obfuscated programs, but even to compile it and generate an obfuscated program. The other big issue that, that we're seeing is that the security assumptions that people are using to prove that the obfuscation is indeed secure uh, are relatively new and they're not very well understood. So there's been a sequence of papers over the last several months uh, proposing attacks on obfuscation schemes and then coming up with corresponding fixes against those attacks. So it's still very much in flux and it will uh, be interesting to see how it develops over the next few months. And what are some of the real world uh, situations where you would want to use obfuscation? Uh, there are several, actually. I mean, one of the, one of them is that companies are very concerned about protecting uh, intellectual property. So if a company, for example, develops a new algorithm or a new tool uh, for doing something, they would like to be able to release their code and allow people to use it, but they don't want competitors to be able to look at the code and figure out the details, of, you know, the secret sauce, as it were, uh, of what they're doing. Uh, another case where obfuscation might be important is uh, releasing security patches. So very often attackers can look at a security patch and from the patch, figure out what the vulnerability was in the first place and potentially exploit it. If you obfuscated that patch, then it might be possible to uh, allow people to update their software and protect themselves while not revealing to attackers the exact nature of the vulnerability. All right. Interesting stuff. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us.
Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the CyberWire. We are proudly produced in Maryland by our talented team of editors and producers. I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 